here's your moment of zen. Two monks who had been great friends lived together in a monastery for decades. In time, one of them died. And within a few months, because they had been such good friends, the other followed. The first monk awoke to discover that he was in heaven. And it was far beyond his expectations. Never had he experienced such happiness. So caught up in the revelry of it all as he was, it was a few centuries before he realized that his friend wasn't there with him. And so, he took off across the celestial heavens looking for his dear friend. Because surely he was having somewhere just as good a time as he was. Well, he looked and he looked and he never found him. And then the monk says to himself, oh dear, if he's not in heaven, he must be in some sort of purgatory. So down into the depths of purgatory he went, off to the lower realms of eternity, and that's where he found his friend, who was now an earthworm, digging in a pile of manure. Now I know lately my language has been a bit coarse. And I'll use the word manure. I won't say anything else. I know I've got a problem with my language. I dropped my son off at school, at college yesterday. And one of his friends, uh, who's just a dear kid who lived half the summer with us, came up to me and hugged my neck. And I hugged him. And I said, Blake, it is so good to see you. Oh, Mr. Ronnie, it's so good to see you too. My mom's here. And she's really Christian. So what's your language? (laughs) I'm really Christian. Oh, I know that, Mr. Ronnie, I know. Anyway. So this earthworm is in a pile of manure. And his friend says, without really thinking about what he did in his previous life to deserve such a fate, says, I've got to get him out of here. And I've got to take him to heaven so he can be with me. And we can enjoy eternity in heaven. Because heaven is so much better than this place where he is. So he starts digging into the manure pile and he gets a hold of the end of the earthworm. And he starts trying to pull him out and the earthworm finally comes out and says, what are you doing? He said, I'm getting you out of here, buddy. We're going to heaven. This is an awful place. And the earthworm says, scram. I like it here. This is where I want to be. Leave me alone. Well, the friend just cannot take that for an answer. And he just keeps digging and digging and pulling and pulling And finally he says, I'm never leaving this place. And the monk has to give up and go back to heaven. Now, do you know the moral of this story? When someone has chosen to dig in the manure pile, no amount of promising, convincing, pulling, or tugging will ever change their mind until they are finished with the manure pile. Now, I could say amen right here, give the invitation, pass the plate, and we would be done. That's enough. That's enough for the day because it's the truth. I've said this for weeks as we've gone through this series of Philippians about taking the mind of Christ, and I've repeated myself that you're not going to change someone else's mind, are you? You can only work on your own mind and allow the power of Christ to transform you from the inside out. And so at the end of this series, I think maybe the story about the monks is an appropriate conclusion. Because after saying all these things, 
you will do with it what you will do with it. And I'm not an enlightened celestial being come down to dig you out of your dung pile by any stretch of the imagination. But all that you've heard, all that has been said is simply information. We are an information-driven culture. If I can just get the facts, and we don't even know what those are anymore apparently, but if I can just get the facts, then I can be transformed. No, facts aren't enough. How many sermons have you heard in your life? How many Bible studies have you gone to? How many columns or faith things have you read? Enough to save the world a hundred times over. It comes down to will you practice what you have heard? Will you put it into place and put it into action? And we come today to the conclusion of this book that is so much about focusing our mind but for the purpose of changing our actions and our behaviors all these weeks, 12 weeks worth. And we are here to the very end in chapter 4, these last few verses of Philippians. This is Philippians 4, 10 through 13. What a great conclusion. He says a few more things and parting greetings, but this is his last piece of instruction. Paul says, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. Because the Philippians had sent him some help in prison. I know that you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need. And here it comes. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation. Whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. That's the simple English translation. Paul didn't write in English, of course. He wrote in Greek with a Hebrew accent. And here is maybe a fuller rendering of what we know from the original languages, which is a little more picturesque, and it would go more or less like this, beginning at verse 11. I learned a long time ago, by much experience, how to live an entirely sufficient life, regardless of my circumstances. I've been humbled with nothing, and I have been filled to overflowing. I've been fattened like a cow, And I've had to scrape by. But I know the secret. I just love that phrase. It reminds me of Jack Palance in the movie City Slickers. Remember that? I know, complete aside here. Jack Palance, what a treasure of an actor for so many years in in Hollywood. And and he played Curly, the mean old cowboy that was so mean to, to all those Jewish cowboys that were on that trail with him. That's what they were. And they'd say, what's the secret, Curly? And he'd go, but he'd never tell them. Paul tells us, I know the secret. I am part of a mysterious group that can live, listen to this, independent of all people and all things. And this is how. Christ constantly puts his power within me. Paul is borrowing a word. From the Greek Stoics here. 
Far and away, Stoicism was the most popular philosophy in the Greek and Roman world of the time. And Paul, having been born and educated in Tarsus, would have been very familiar with their school of thought, as the Stoics had a school there in his hometown. And the borrowed word is auto archeo, two words, auto, which means self, archeo, which means sufficient. The Stoic mindset was, I must be self-sufficient. That is how a person reaches contentment. That is how a person reaches happiness, relying upon nothing and no one but themselves. That is Stoicism's highest ethical aim. And we have to be thankful here for Paul introducing this concept into the Christian lexicon because I think he and the Stoics were on to something here. If you had to rely, think about this. If you had to rely upon no one, that would truly be the definition of freedom and contentment. No need to be protected in any way. No need to be in someone else's employment. No need for money. No need to be protected from the elements, the cold, by police or military. To be not dependent upon someone else's love or affection for your own feelings of love and affection. To be free of all fear, expectation, emotion, or the threat of disappointing others. Buddy, if we could live like that, we would genuinely be free. Paul and the Stoics agree on the outcome. It is, it is sufficiency that sets us free, but they disagree on how to get there. First, the Stoic. When you think of a Stoic, what do you think of? So, someone with just a flat effect. They're unflappable. They're immovable. We might say that they have no emotions, even. And that is the Stoic ethic. They taught that enlightenment, access to the universal truth, and happiness is through self-control. Fortitude, the absolute destruction of personal emotions. Because emotions are evil. Those are what get you in trouble. If you're a heart person here today, and I know some of you are, how many by raising your hand would consider yourself a heart person? You lead with your heart. Forget facts and thoughts. I'm, I'm all in with my emotions. It's okay. Go ahead. It's all right. None of you could make it in the stoic world that just raised your hand. You couldn't do it because you can't divorce yourself of your feelings. As I often tell my wife, your problem is not that you have feelings. You have your feelings and everybody else's feelings. No wonder you're overwhelmed, right? Anybody say amen to that? So y'all are not going to be stoics. That doesn't mean you can't listen for the next few minutes. Some of us who maybe operate from the head or the gut We can get that stoic thing going, so we can kind of turn down our emotions. But we don't go as far as these stoics in Paul's day. This is from William Barclay, and it's a passage from a stoic teacher who lived at the same time as the Apostle Paul. Now, this is what he says. Are you ready? Say amen. Begin with a cup or a kitchen utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Okay. Go on to a horse or your pet dog. If it dies, say, I don't care. Oh, now we're meddling, right? Go on to yourself 
And if you're hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. If you go long enough and try hard enough, you will come to a stage where you can watch your nearest and dearest loved ones suffer and die and say, I don't care. What a redemptive way to live in the world. A little harsh, don't you think? T.R. Glover says, The Stoics made their hearts a desert and called it peace. But it wasn't peace. It was just this dry, dead, apathetic, indifferent place. I'm not near as eloquent as Barclay or Glover, so I will say it like this, and I've used this example before. The best example in my lifetime of the Stoic, press on, I don't care, I feel no pain, is Wild E. Cody. Oh, the joy to be 10 years old on Saturday mornings and turn on Coyote and Roadrunner. Can't, right? What do kids do on Saturday mornings now? Just get on their phones. How, why, that's no fun. There are only 48 episodes of Wild E. Coyote and Roadrunner. I thought there were 5,000. I know them all by heart. And it's not easy to know them by heart because you know what's going to happen. Chuck Jones, who created those cartoons 49 years ago this month, had a set of commandments. Google this. Test me. Because if you read it on the internet, you know it's true. (laughs) Chuck Jones had a set of commandments about what would dictate the relationship between Coyote, that's his real name, as in Don Quixote, not Coyote, Coyote and the Roadrunner. 10 or 11 different commandments. I'll highlight a couple of them for you that highlight his stoic abilities. Rule number four, there is no dialogue except for the roadrunner saying, beep, beep. The coyote could not speak. He had to suffer in silence. And number two, no, I love this one, no outside force can harm the coyote. He is only a victim of his own demise. Go, read, go watch the cartoons. It's always the coyote getting himself in trouble. Jones wanted to ensure, and he, he says this in his autobiography that was released a few years ago, he wanted to ensure that only the coyote's stupidity and failure and stubbornness would be his enemy, but he would feel no pain. He would get up like a fanatic and go right back to it. That's stoicism. You know some people possibly in your life that are stoic. They really haven't felt a thing in many, many years. If things still hurt you, if things still break your heart, if you still weep when you hold a child, if you turn on the news and wonder why, well, thank God for it. It means your heart is still beating. And there's some emotion still left in you that you care about what is going on in the world. The opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. And once we say, I don't care, the gig is up. We don't have very much left to give at that point. So you have to agree, though, with the Stoic premise. If you felt nothing from anything or for anybody you would have a degree of freedom that few people 
ever experience because nothing would be able to hurt you. And sometimes when we talk about freedom, that's what we really want. I want to be free. And what we're saying is, I don't ever want to feel pain again. Well, guess what? As long as you're breathing, it's going to hurt somewhere. (laughs) Physically, emotionally, spiritually. And you can shut down all those emotions. You can shut down all of those feelings. And you will be free, but you will also be psychotic. Or at least very antisocial. It would make you heartless. And that's not much of a way to live. As Glover says, the Stoics make the heart a desert and call it peace. Or, a la Wally Coyote, you end up living in a desert. Alone. Obsessed with your obsessions, but never getting anywhere. So what's the alternative? Paul tells us, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Let's get a hold of this and don't miss it. Because I see this printed on a lot of t-shirts now. You see it? Go into a gym. And there'll be some middle-aged guy like me who's past his athletic prime trying to get his reps in with a shirt that says, I can do all things through Christ. (laughs) I will never be able to pick up that bar. I will never complete a marathon. And you can put, I can do all things. That's not what it means. Stop it. Stop it. Now, if you've got that shirt, wear it. Feel free. I'll make fun of you behind your back, and I won't say anything to your face. But that's not what it means. I can do all things through Christ. Look at me. That is still being more self-reliant than anything, is it not? What I can accomplish, what I can do. Paul is not talking about getting your reps in or completing a marathon. He's talking about surviving in the face of this world. I can make it. I can do this. So long as it is Christ who puts His strength within me. It won't be a stoic approach where I dig down and find it for myself. It will be the gift of God to me as Christ works in my life. So the stoic says you can be happy if you try hard enough. Paul says no, happiness is the result of what Christ gives you. The stoic says contentment is reliant upon you. And Paul says contentment is reliant upon Christ. The Stoic said, you'll be satisfied once you get rid of all your emotions and your desires. And Paul says, no, Christ is the fulfillment of those emotions and those desires. The Stoic says, we can willfully produce our own personal happiness. It is something you can achieve. And Paul says, no, real happiness, like everything in this world that is great, is a gift from God. That's the source. The happy, contented, fulfilled, satisfied life can be ours. But there are two paths to take. We grind it out the stoic way or we receive what Christ has to give us and be content within Him. Those are the choices before us. That's why Jesus could say things like, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. 
He who comes to me will, will have water, springs of living water springing up within them and they'll never be thirsty again. Jesus is talking about a satisfaction, a spiritual, deep, emotional, real satisfaction that comes from a relationship with Him and not our outer circumstances. It's taken me a while, I think, to come to this conclusion because it, it's not... Was it my experience growing up, and it may not have been yours, but happiness and contentment is a virtue. And it's not always taught that way, is it? We kind of get suspicious of anybody that's happy. What are they up to? What are they doing? I mean, my religious background was sort of like, well, are you suffering? Yes, good. You know you deserve it. Do you feel ashamed? Well, yeah, I, I, I sort of do. Good, you worm, you wretch. Is guilt weighing heavy on you? Well, you should feel every pound of it because I know you haven't been up to doing the right thing. I mean, does anybody else know what I'm talking about here? I put my hand on a lady here a few years ago on her shoulder and I said, hey, as I was walking by her and she startled. And I said, do you have a guilty conscience? Just joking. And she said, of course I do. I was raised Catholic. <laughs> and I said, honey, the Catholics had nothing on the Mountain Baptist. They didn't write the rules down, but they were understood, right? Let somebody get happy this side of heaven. Let somebody show a sense of satisfaction and serenity, and half the church will break into a prayer meeting for them. Because, you know, this life is full of trouble, and it is, so you shouldn't be happy. I think that's a heresy. I think contented, happy, satisfied lives, in spite of all that goes around us, is what God is calling us to. That a large part of what we call salvation and getting saved and getting right with God is getting on the right path so that this life that we have been gifted with, and it is so very short, can be a life of joy, not a life of drudgery where we're just waiting to check out from this one to get to the next one. Blaise Pascal said this, and I'm finished. Without exception, all people want to be happy. Whatever different means they might employ, all are reaching for the same goal, and no one does anything without this being their final objective. Happiness is the motive of every action of every person, even those who take their own lives. My God, you will never hear anything more true than that. We are all after that. The question is, what path will we choose to get there? Will we rely upon ourselves and all we can muster? Or will we take it as a gift of God as we focus ourselves on the living Christ? That is the question left for all of us to work out.